You're listening to the Dwell on These Things podcast, a regular dose of Christ-centered encouragement to put your mind in a better place. Listen in as Pastor John Stonge shares Bible studies, interviews, training, and some of his most recent sermons. We're glad to have you with us today. Well, good evening and welcome to our weekly Bible study. This evening, we're going to be looking at James chapter 5, verses 13 through 20, and we're going to be talking about the prayer of faith that James references here in this portion of Scripture. We've been going through the book of James over the course of the past few months, and this evening is going to be the finale of our study of the book of James. This is going to be our last week looking at this particular book, and I think James is a fascinating book. I think it's a practical book. It's certainly one of the portions of Scripture that I latched on to early when I first started studying Scripture, and for many people, uh, I have heard them say that the book of James actually happens to be one of their favorite books of the Bible, if not their favorite book of the Bible, and for good reason. There's lots here in the book that gives us wisdom and counsel on how we can be walking with Christ and how we can live out our faith in the midst of a culture that doesn't always quite appreciate our faith. And so, again, we're going to be talking about the prayer of faith from James chapter 5, and we're starting with verse 13 this evening, and we'll work our way right to the end of the chapter. Now, a few quick thoughts here at the beginning. First of all, as believers in Jesus Christ, one of the most critical spiritual disciplines that we can develop is prayer. And I don't know if you use that term spiritual discipline uh, a lot in your own life. I don't know if you think about things, uh, you know, through the lens of, of them being spiritual disciplines, but when you look at what Scripture tells us as, as men and women who know Jesus Christ, we're invited to be people who practice various spiritual disciplines, and prayer is one of the one of the critical spiritual disciplines that we're encouraged to make a regular practice of. Scripture invites us to pray regularly. Uh, we're invited to pray fervently, And we're invited to pray with genuine faith, and you're going to see that explained directly and illustrated in the portion of Scripture that we're about to look at this evening. But when we pray, we're inviting God to directly intervene in our lives. And I don't know if we always phrase this in our mind quite this way, but that's exactly what we're doing. We're inviting God to directly intervene in our lives. And uh, that's, a, that's a, a wonderful privilege, and it's, it's a, an amazing opportunity that we're given through prayer. Now, for some, prayer is treated like a formality, or maybe it's even treated like a good intention, but it doesn't become a regular practice or a regular habit. And I'm just throwing this question out there, uh, just for starters, just to get our minds thinking, but why do you suppose that is? You know, just think about that for a second. Why do you suppose prayer gets treated like a formality or a good intention, but it doesn't necessarily become a regular practice or a regular habit for many people? There's, there's some reasons for that. Maybe we'll cover some of that this evening as we work our way through this scripture. But could it be that we aren't convinced that prayer will accomplish anything. Might that be one of the reasons why prayer doesn't become a regular practice for some of us or or a habit in our day-to-day walk? Are we not convinced that prayer is actually going to accomplish something? Uh, that's certainly something worth wrestling with. Or how about this? Is it possible that we're more comfortable relying on our own power? And since we've become comfortable relying on our own power, we don't necessarily seek the Lord's power or seek the Lord's intervention. That's certainly something we want to wrestle with, and so that's certainly a possibility, and uh, we'll be talking about that as well and looking at what the Scripture tells us this evening. Now, in James chapter 5, verses 13 to 20, and we'll be reading this a section at a time in just a moment, in this portion of Scripture, we're encouraged to be people of prayer, and we're reminded that prayer is worth our time. And we're also shown that God acts on our behalf in miraculous ways when we pray. And I want to emphasize that because I think that that's something that could be very easily forgotten or very easily dismissed. Sometimes we don't realize that God is more than happy to act in miraculous ways on our behalf through prayer. He invites us to trust him to do that very thing. 
And he gives us a great example of that in James chapter 5 that we'll look at in a few minutes. So is prayer a spiritual discipline that you're committed to? Do you claim to deeply love Jesus, but still struggle to interact with him through prayer? These are the type of things I want us to be wrestling with as we look at this passage, because uh, prayer ultimately needs to become something that is a facet and a feature of our life that we couldn't imagine living life without. Now, let's jump into the portion of Scripture that we're looking at this evening. We're in James chapter 5, verses 13 and 14 is where we'll start. And in this portion of Scripture here, you'll see that James is encouraging us to pray in all circumstances of life. So let me show you what he says here. He says in James 5, starting with verse 13, he says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Let's pause there for just a second. I think it's interesting to to look at how James starts this section off, because he's showing us that prayer isn't something that's just reserved for, uh, you know, certain unique, special circumstances. He shows us here that we can pray in all circumstances of life. In fact, we should be people who pray in all circumstances of life. And he gives us a variety of of examples here. He starts it off with suffering. He says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. So probably one of the, the seasons of life where we're most likely to pray is when we're going through suffering. I know for me, um, you know, I, I, I want to say that I pray in all circumstances of life, and I, I do believe that that's true of my life, but I also have noticed that I feel extremely eager and extremely desperate to pray when I'm in the midst of a season of suffering. Suffering is not easy. Suffering is difficult. Suffering is painful. And when we're in those seasons, the Scripture encourages us to pray. The Scripture encourages us to bring these needs, to bring these concerns before the Lord. If anyone among us is suffering, we can pray. And so James starts it off, I think, by beginning with the most obvious circumstance when we're likely to request prayer and come before the Lord in prayer, when we're suffering, when we're going through uh, deep needs, when we're going through pain. I remember a few years ago, uh, I actually had a season where uh, I, I was just feeling very, very sick, and it seemed like it, it, it hung on for a long time. I don't get sick too often, so this felt out of the blue. And I remember being at a spot where the only thing I felt like I could do was just lay on the floor of my bedroom. I didn't want to disturb other people, so I just laid down on the floor of my bedroom, and I was in such pain. And all I could do is just pray for mercy, that the Lord would just cause the discomfort and pain to 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 go away, that he would heal my body. And uh, so I do appreciate what James says here when he says, look, if anyone among you is suffering, let him pray. But then he segues from that, and he says, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. So I'm wondering, how often do we think of praying when we're cheerful? You know, how often does it come to our mind that, that that's a great opportunity for us to not necessarily make a supplication before the Lord or a request of the Lord, but to just sing out our praise, to just express it with emotion and with enthusiasm, to just come before the Lord and joyfully sing out our praise. And so James is encouraging us to do that. So moments when we're suffering, pray. Moments when we're cheerful, sing praise. And uh, these are opportunities for us to just express our appreciation to the Lord and ask him to intervene in our life. And then he gives us another example here of when we can come before the Lord in prayer. And he says specifically, is anyone among you sick? So, you know, I I used sickness as a form of suffering in, in kind of my own personal example uh, just a moment ago. But here he gets very specific. He says, is anyone among you sick? And then he says, here's the solution. This is what you do. You call for the elders of the church and let them, he says, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. 
Now, let's talk about that for just a second. There's a couple things here that are worth noticing. First of all, this the, the book of James was the earliest book of the New Testament that was written down. It was written before the Gospels were written down. It was written before Paul's letters. It was written before the other portions of the New Testament were written down. It's believed that the book of James is the earliest book of the New Testament to actually be written. And here you have James talking a little bit about how the church operates. And he's pointing out a plurality of leadership. And he's talking about the idea that the elders of the church would come and pray for the person who is sick, that that would be one of their responsibilities, that that would be one of the things that they would do, that they would come and pray for the sick person. And so it seems to, it seems to um, invite the sick person to, to uh, request that the elders do this, that the elders come and pray over that person. And some people debate, well, you know, what if that sick person doesn't have great faith? Or what if that sick person does have great faith? Does that in some respect impact the um, effectiveness of the prayer of the elders? And the truth is the scripture here doesn't go into those details. It just says, if you're sick, call the elders and have them pray over you. And so that that's a certain, that's the type of thing though, that we do because we believe that prayer has power, that we're accessing the power of God. And then James goes even further here to say, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And that's a portion of this verse that people debate all the time. What is the significance of this anointing with oil? Some people treat the oil, by the way, that's being referenced here as if somehow it would have some sort of magic power or or some sort of power in and of itself. But that's not the significance, in my opinion, of this concept of anointing with oil. I'll tell you a a quick story here. Several years ago, someone that uh, we're friends with uh, received a pretty scary cancer diagnosis. And I remember at the time she asked if myself and the elders of our church would pray over her and would anoint her with oil. And as we prepared to do so, uh, she said, I'm not even really sure what the oil is supposed to do. All I know is that when I read the book of James, it says that prayer and the anointing with oil seem to go hand in hand as one is anointed with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, I want you to think about some other portions of Scripture that speak about anointing. When you look back over the course of what Scripture says, particularly in the New Testament, or excuse me, the Old Testament Scriptures, you see examples of people being anointed in a variety of ways. And typically, when it came to oil being utilized, the oil was symbolic of something. It was symbolic of the presence of the Holy Spirit. It was symbolic of the fact that the Holy Spirit would be coming upon the person for a particular purpose. One example that I can think of is when David was anointed to be the next king of Israel. And he, you know, Samuel anointed him. So oil is put over David's head. He's anointed. And it's basically symbolic of the fact that the Holy Spirit would be coming upon David and selecting him for the particular task that he was given, that he would be anointed with oil, that he would be anointed in that particular context to do that. Now, the anointing, I believe, was symbolic, but ultimately it was a physical demonstration, a visible demonstration of a spiritual reality, something that the Lord was accomplishing for David's benefit, for the benefit of the people of Israel. So here in this context, I believe, as this portion of Scripture is speaking about this idea of of letting the elders pray over the sick person and then letting the elders anoint the person with oil, that that would be a visible demonstration of the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit interacting on on behalf of the sick person. Some people have also speculated in thinking about how oil can at times be used in a medicinal way when you think of it as um, you know maybe something that could be could have certain benefit to skin ailments or something like that. Some people have said, well, maybe this would be something that was done in their culture at that time for a medicinal purpose as well. And there's maybe some argument to that. But I actually think that what James is getting at here is more along the lines of this operating like a visible 
illustration or a visible example of a spiritual reality, symbolic of the Holy Spirit coming upon this sick person and, uh, and ultimately healing that sick person uh, of their ailment, of their illness. And so uh, all that to say, in these opening verses of the section that we're looking at this evening, you, you, you basically have James saying, whatever circumstance you're in, if you're suffering, if you're cheerful, or if you're sick, come before the Lord in prayer. Come before the Lord in prayer. Don't hesitate to come before the Lord in prayer. And then the scripture goes on to show us a a little bit more about prayer when you get into verses 15 and 16, where it reminds us that we access the power of God through prayer, that this is God's ordained means for us to access his power. We access his power through prayer prayer. So James is continuing that thought that he began in verses 13 and 14, where he says here that this is what will happen as we come before the Lord in prayer. And it says, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. So I think he's referencing here the the prayer of the elders being offered in faith, because I think sometimes when people are sick, uh, they may be so weak physically that it impacts them spiritually, and maybe even their faith is struggling in that point. And so that's an opportunity for the elders to lift that person up while they're feeling weak. And so the prayer of faith, I think it's referencing the elders' faith here in this particular context, because I certainly believe that it's it's possible for a person to get so sick and so weak that maybe their faith is tested, maybe their faith feels like it's also struggling in that period of time. And that's a great opportunity for someone else who's at a season where their faith may be stronger uh, to lift up that person in prayer. But it says, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And then it says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So let's think about some of the things that are referenced here. Again, it's showing us that we access the power of God through prayer, and it demonstrates this in a variety of ways. So again, it says, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. But then it says, and the Lord will raise him up. The Lord will raise him up. So I believe this portion of scriptures is inviting us to have confidence in the Lord's ability to take somebody who is sick and heal them someone who is laying down ill, unable to move, similar to what I described where I I got to a point where the only thing I felt like I could do was just lay down on my bedroom floor because I I just needed to be like on a hard, low surface, and I was really struggling. And here it talks about the fact the Lord will raise them up. The Lord raises up the sick. The Lord heals the sick. This is something that the Lord accomplishes through prayer. But then James segues into a related thought here related to sin, because he says, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So think about that statement, and um, we'll probably discuss this a little bit here when we get into our discussion time. But um, what do you think about this thought? If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Do you think there's ever illness that we may deal with that might have direct correlation to sin we have committed? I bring that up because this isn't the only portion of Scripture in the New Testament that speaks of this. If you're familiar with 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when you get down into verse 30, it speaks about the fact that there were those among the Corinthians who were sick, those those among them that were dealing with all sorts of issues that were related to the fact that they were persisting in sin. And the sickness that they were dealing with had direct correlation to their desire to persist in sin. And so James here is is making that same kind of correlation. He's saying that there are some illnesses that are the direct result of our persistence in sin. And maybe it's a form of chastisement. Maybe it's something that you would say has a, a direct medical correlation to the fact that if you spend your life with a guilty conscience, what you're going to end up doing is you're going to uh, impact yourself mentally and uh, even spiritually, and that has a capacity to impact you physically as well. But he says here, if, if he's committed sins, he'll be forgiven. And then he shows us something here that we should make a pattern and a practice of, but it's one of the hardest things that that we as believers who still at times struggle with pride. It's one of the hardest things that at times we could be asked to do. 
And he tells us in verse 16, he says, if you want to get over some of this stuff, you've been holding back, here's what to do. He says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Confession of sin is something that's very important. It's important in our relationship with the Lord, but I think it's also important in our relationship with one another. I think that there should be people in our lives that we take the opportunity to actually confess our sin to, and that can be difficult. I have some people in my life that I openly confess my sin to, and I do it on purpose because I don't want sin to become an idol in my life. And uh, I've even gotten into the habit as a as a, a father, you know, here in my household, you know, my, my wife and I, we have four children. And one of the things that I have tried to do, even as a father, if I feel that in some way I have sinned against my children, to just apologize to them. If I feel like I've lost my cool, if I feel like I've lost my temper, if I feel like I've exasperated them, if I feel like I've done something that doesn't sit right with my conscience, I, I have learned that it actually helps me lead in my household, and it helps me to operate with a clear conscience if I can quickly admit my wrongs instead of trying to hold on to those things and maybe live in denial that that those things are even present. And here it encourages us to pray for one another, but to also confess our sins to one another. And one of the added benefits that we experience if we confess our sins to one another, um, it, it also shows us how we can be praying for one another. So if I confess my sin to you in a particular area, that also triggers your mind to know how to be praying for me. And one of the reasons why we end up struggling with uh, sin and struggling with all sorts of things is because um, we don't give those things up. We don't reveal those things to one another, and people don't know how to be praying for us because we're not admitting what we're wrestling with. And so we can confess our sins to one another and then pray for one another with some knowledge there. But it also reminds us that we are not Jesus, meaning if I confess my sins to you, I'm being reminded that I am not Christ. I am not Jesus. He is the one who can interact in my day-to-day life. He's the one who is the Savior. He's the one who can ultimately do what is of, of benefit to me. He's the one who can ultimately bring healing and bring help and just help me with all the things that I'm struggling with or dealing with. It's a reminder that I need him to be the Savior. And it says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. I love what that scripture says, the fact that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And, uh, and it's reminding us that, that we access the power of God through prayer. Now, the scripture goes on to show us some additional things here. And, that, and when you look at uh, James chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, there it shows us this. It says, it, it reveals to us that every believer can access God's power through prayer. And if you look at what it tells us in James 5, verses 17 and 18, it, it gives us an example of Elijah. And Elijah is somebody that probably, if you're familiar with Scripture, um, Elijah is somebody that you're well aware of. He's one of the people that, that many of us consider one of the greatest examples of what it looks like to uh, have a, a deep and abiding faith in the Lord. But it tells us here that in verses 17 and 18 of James chapter 5, it says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. So it's saying he was a man like us. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. You ever thought about the fact that that your prayers, as you're accessing the power of God, invite God to do things that are far beyond what would naturally be done? And here in James 5, it reminds us that Elijah, he was somebody just like us, with a nature just like us, but he fervently came before the Lord. He fervently came before the Lord in prayer, and he prayed that it might not rain. And then it tells us, for three and a half years, that judgment came upon the land because Elijah prayed that it would. It was the opportunity for people to repent. 
is the opportunity for people to come before the Lord and say, Lord, we're sorry for rebelling against you. We're sorry for sinning against you. And, um, and it was a time of judgment that Elijah was able to basically invite to come upon the land for three years and six months. But then when he prayed again, heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. And every believer has that kind of access to God's power through prayer. That's why James is bringing this up. And he, he's pointing out, yeah, we, you might be tempted to revere Elijah. And certainly I have a great deal of respect for Elijah and how the Lord used Elijah during the course of his life. But, it, but James is not trying to elevate Elijah into being some sort of superhuman. He's saying he was just like you and me. He had a nature just like us. And he was able to access the power of God through prayer. And likewise, so are you. And there's one other thing that James brings up, and this is how he ends the book. And some would even say that this is kind of an abrupt ending to the book. But I think it's a, a, uh, an interesting way to end it. And he kind of ties everything together, and he kind of ends the book with, with a poignant thought. But he, he's bringing up the fact that the Lord may indeed use you as an answer to prayer. So think about this in a very personal way. How might the Lord use you? as an answer to prayer. Let me read James 5, 19 and 20. James ends the book by saying this. He says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Isn't that amazing? James was being lovingly confrontational throughout the book of James, bringing up all sorts of things that we as believers should be aware of. But then he also ends the book by saying, listen, if you notice any of these issues that he had brought up throughout the course of the book, says if you, know, if, if any, if you notice someone wandering or if you are wandering and, and another brother or sister in Christ brings you back, they, they, they point out the, the area where you've been wandering, they bring you back, um, he says, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering, we've all had seasons of wandering, I've had seasons of wandering, and I'm sure that you have as well. We've all wandered at one point or another. Maybe some of us on the call tonight live are wandering right now, or maybe some of you that are accessing this via the podcast feel like you're going through a season of wandering. Well, here it says, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins the Lord can use you as an answer to prayer. The Lord can use you as someone who helps another person, another brother, another sister, to come to Jesus Christ, to stop wandering, to stop living life as if Christ doesn't exist, and ultimately go from death to life or from rebellion to submission. And so James ends this book by encouraging us to be mindful of these things. Now, in, in just a moment here, I'm going to take us off the screen share here, and I'm going to bring up uh, our guests via the gallery view. Those of you that are accessing via the podcast, I just encourage you to stop by our website, which is desirejesus.com, because you'll find a whole bunch of information there that I hope you'll find useful. We have a whole bunch of blog content, and uh, we have books there for you. We also have a free book right now, and right now we're giving away the book, The Mind of Christ, and that's free. You can download it instantly at desirejesus.com, and we'd invite you to, to stop over there and be able to access that if you'd like to. But I'm going to take this off gallery view right now, and I'm going to stop my screen share, and I'm going to bring everybody up. So let's see who we have on the call with us this evening. And I want to start us off this evening by asking this question. Um, and it's a question about prayer. And it's not a hard one, because I want to just kind of start us off with something a little bit easier, and then we'll kind of work our way up to some, some things that maybe uh, could be a little bit more in-depth. But here's my question. When are you most likely to pray? So just think about that in regard to your own life and your own walk with the Lord. When are you most likely to pray? Is there a time that you've noticed or a, a season that you would say you are most likely to pray in the midst of? Who wants to get the ball rolling for us? We need someone to kind of break the ice. Who wants to be our icebreaker this evening? When are you more likely to pray or most likely to pray? I'll start. All right. Oh, uh, yeah. So yeah. I, I think that I used to be uh, far more likely to pray during um, suffering. Um, and I found that uh, actually focusing more on 
continually uh, uh, showing gratitude to God for all of my blessings has really sort of changed my my perspective. Uh, gives you a better uh, daily perspective on life. It's very easy for people to focus on the negative, and um, if you're constantly praising God for your blessings in life, then it helps you to focus on those positives. Yeah. Yeah. So you would say at one point you would say it was kind of mainly during seasons of suffering, but you've really seen your prayer life expand in recent years. Probably as your faith has grown and developed, you've watched your prayer life become more integrated in uh, day-to-day life, which is really cool. Thanks, Ian. All right. Uh, Ellie, I see that you have your hand up. So I'll ask that question for you. When would you say, and I see we have a couple kiddos here on the call with us tonight, which is wonderful. Um, Ellie, when would you say you are most likely to pray? Do you have an answer to that? What do you think? Um, Family. For family? You're more likely to pray? You're most likely to pray for family? Like who are sick. Okay, so you're praying for those that are sick. All right. All right. How about you, Sydney? I saw your hand up as well. Let's hear it. When are you most likely to pray? What do you think? Um, when someone I know is sick or is going through a hard time. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks for sharing that. All right. Now, let me uh, let me ask a follow-up to that. And this is for anyone here on the call. Uh, can you think of an example of something that has prompted you to pray in recent days? Something that's prompted you to pray in recent days. I'll give an example just from my own life. Um, thankfully, uh, there was a, a, just a, a, a quick answer to this prayer. Uh, just yesterday, a friend of mine from my home church, someone I grew up with, uh, who has a son who is 20 years old. He was missing, and uh, no one knew where he was, and everybody was very concerned, and it had been several days since they found him, and so they asked that we could just share this online, and, and people were looking for him, and thankfully, he was found. And, um, and everybody's feeling quite relieved, but I know that I felt very uneasy last evening when I saw that, when I saw that my friend's son was missing, uh, your mind goes all sorts of places with something like that. And so that was a moment that prompted me to pray, but I'll give you another one as well. Uh, recently, so right now in the midst of the winter, this is not a season of the year when typically you, you expect to have nice weather and, um, and so during this season of the year, I would typically expect it to be gray. Well, recently it was sunny and it was nice. And I thought to myself, you know what? This is a moment to, to lift up praise before the Lord, just a thankfulness. As I was driving on a sunny day, I thought, Lord, thank you so much for this beautiful day. I felt like just soaking it all in. Um, so can anyone else think of an example of something that's prompted them to pray in recent days? Those are a few of my own examples. Um, moments of parenting often leads me to pray. <laughs> moments of parenting lead you to pray. I don't know what you're talking about, dear wife. <laughs> All right. I have a follow-up question then related to the next scripture. How do prayer and confession of sin work together? Anyone have an opinion on that? How do prayer and confession of sin work together. I think if we're consistent in praying, we're also prompted then to, uh, to confess sin because, you know, a consistency in prayer indicates that we are actively seeking a relationship with God. And, you know, you can't, you can't exist in that realm while also ignoring, you know, the sin that exists blatantly in your life. And I think you become more aware of it if you are focusing on um, a consistent relationship with God. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point where, where you're saying you're developing a sensitivity through prayer, um, like a sensitivity to the Lord's will and to the Lord's heart. Yeah. Some other thoughts. How do you think confession of sin and prayer work together? All right, go ahead, Ellie. I think how they work together is like um, you could confess your sin while praying. Okay. Like, yeah, like that. Okay, so you could you could uh, 
yeah, just come before the Lord in prayer and confess. Yeah. All right. Very good. All right, Sydney, go ahead. You can confess your sins by praying with someone. Yeah, that is true. You can now. Let me ask you, Sydney. Have Have you ever done that? Um, with Olivia. Okay, good. With your sister. Wonderful. All right. Wonderful. I see Tim's hand up as well. Tim, what do you think? How do, how do prayer and confession of sin work together? And by the way, Tim, this is the first time I'm meeting you. So I think it's first time. Is it the first time I'm meeting you? It is. Yes, sir. Thank you for joining our, our time together tonight. I jo- joined your webinar earlier with uh, Brotherhood. Uh, oh, yeah, absolutely. With uh, Servant Keeper. Is that what yes, sir. And I've enjoyed the mind of Christ as well. Oh, wonderful. I'm, gra- yes. I'm grateful for that. So what do you think? How do prayer and confession of sin work together? Well, when uh, James said the prayers of a righteous man uh, makes many things happen, we, we, if there's issues in our life, then we're not righteous. Uh, <laughs> so it's important to get anything out of our hearts so that our prayers will be more effective. Yeah. So if there's something that basically we're holding back from God, or if there's something, if we're if we're basically saying, Lord, I'm going to I'm going to elevate my own personal idols over a relationship with you. That's obviously going to impact our prayers. There's a good example of that, Tim, by the way, too, that I often think about as a husband. And I wonder if any of the other uh, folks on the call here were, are, are aware of this, too, um, where it tells us in Scripture that that our prayers will be hindered if we are not sensitive to our wives. That will hinder our prayers. So I often think about that as, as, as a husband. You know, if I, if I invite insensitivity into the nature of my relationship with my wife that will hinder my prayers. So yeah, confession of sin. Um, it, it really does work hand in hand with prayer. How, how about this too? Here, here's another uh, related thing here. Um, can shame be overcome through confession? Can shame be overcome through confession? A lot of times when we invite things into our life that don't belong there and our conscience is troubled by that, we deal with feelings of shame, feelings of guilt. So, you know, what do you think? Can that be overcome through confession? If so, how? Anyone have a thought? Just in response to that question. Uh, yeah. If, if when we confess and it's it's been forgiven through Christ, then we're the guilt of that. We've been relieved of it. So therefore, there's no shame. And so confession will release us of the shame because the guilt is gone. The accuser may still come, but through Christ, there's no accusation. Yeah. Isn't that a wonderful thing? The fact that, so, I mean, Scripture tells us that Satan is the accuser of the brethren, right? So what does Satan want me to experience all throughout the course of my life? constant shame. Now, all of us have mistakes in our past that we could list that, or even mistakes today, that we would probably feel some level of shame over. And Satan loves to remind us of those things and remind us of those things, you know, something from your past, something from your childhood or from your high school years or from your college years or or from 10 years ago or whatever. Like it's just a, a, a recurring story in your mind. And it in you know in that in those moments it's like all right do i want to give in to that or do i want to accept the fact that christ is sufficient to heal me of my shame that christ is sufficient that i mean think about what christ did on the cross for us when christ was crucified for us that wasn't a dignified experience for him right i mean when you when you look at what scripture tells us what did they do they cast lots for his clothing so it wasn't like they even allowed him to experience modesty while he was on the cross, they cast lots for his clothing. And what they're trying to do is shame him and embarrass him. And what was Christ ultimately doing for us? He was taking our shame upon himself at the cross. He was taking our shame upon himself at the cross. So if I go through life bearing shame for things that I have already confessed to the Lord and repented of, isn't that almost like I'm devaluing the fact that Christ took my shame upon himself. It's like I'm saying that's not enough. But yet scripture teaches me that it is enough, that Christ took my shame upon himself. So I don't need to keep bearing a load that's already been placed upon him, that he endured so much pain to to handle. 
And so, you know, when I, when I look at like this idea of confession that James is bringing up in this portion of scripture, I really do believe that shame can be overcome as we confess these things to the Lord. And we just rest in the fact that Jesus has, has ultimately uh, taken our shame upon himself. Now, um, let me, let me jump to the, to the next section here where it was talking about Elijah and I'd just be curious to, to find out from you guys, um, do you consider Elijah to be someone like you? Like when you think about Elijah in scriptures, as scripture references Elijah, do you think he's someone like you? <laughs> do you think, Andrea, you're shaking your head no? Why, why is that? You don't tend to think of Elijah as someone um, like you? I think it's hard sometimes when we see snapshots of people in stories like that. Like you, it's kind of like the highlight reel. And so... <laughs> Um, it's kind of hard to, to identify maybe with them in the same way. Yeah. Yeah. Elijah doesn't automatically seem like, like someone who would be like us. Right. I think ways that God used him and, you know, yes, we can acknowledge, you know, like he was a person and stuff like that, but there's some pretty amazing things. And so it's kind of hard to, you know, I relate to a little bit in that way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how, how about some of the others? Do you think Elijah is someone like you? What do you think, Paul? Uh, I was just going to say that uh, no. <laughs> uh, it would be rather hard for me to imagine myself going up against the uh, 400 prophets of Baal yeah. and then have you know that whole experience. However, I love that story. Yeah. That is such a great example. <laughs> How, however, I think in another, in another way we are like Elijah because Elijah was uh, somebody that God had placed in a particular period of time to accomplish his will mm-hmm. at that particular point. And, uh, you know, we might not have to battle the 400 prophets of Baal, but we certainly are battling uh, in this world today the, um, the, the secular uh, attacks that are being placed on the church, on us as individuals, our own individual faith. So, uh, well, I, I don't consider myself the equal of Elijah, um, but we all have, we all are instruments that God uses in his, in, in, in the time that he places us in. Yeah. 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 And, and when you look at Elijah, it's not like Elijah was, um, the essence of his own authority, right? You know, the amazing things that the Lord did, he did through Elijah. It wasn't like Elijah had this power in and of himself. This was done through him as the Lord. I mean, Elijah looks great in our eyes because Elijah ultimately submitted himself over to the Lord, and then the Lord did great and mighty things through him. But yeah, I do. I find it fascinating, you know, and, it, and it's interesting, like, Paul, you bring up some good examples there about some of the struggles and and what it's like for us to live in this uh, highly secular age, you know, Elijah certainly could identify with that because that was definitely the case in, in his era as well. And I just find it fascinating that James makes a point to say that Elijah was like us. He had a nature like us. He was someone like you and me. Um, because we tend to, we tend to over elevate these people that we refer to as like biblical heroes. But do you ever notice in scripture how, the Lord makes a point to show us just how human they are so that we won't idolize them so that we'll realize that Jesus is the solution, not Elijah. <laughs> you know, I don't need to worship Moses. I don't need to worship Elijah. I don't need to worship the apostle Paul. You know, Christ is the solution, not these others, right? These were men and women just like us. Although Elijah also has one distinguishing, well, not he's not the only one though. But Elijah was taken up into heaven on a, in a fiery chariot. Isn't and and that like, part's fascinating he, too, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, Elijah did. He's he's one of a very few uh, who were taken bodily into heaven. Uh, that's so. It would be nice to think that could happen to us, but uh, I got a feeling that God's going to handle us another way. Yeah. And it, there's there's two individuals that uh, that are referenced in scriptures being just kind of scooped away, right? You know, you have Elijah and Enoch, and I find that fascinating when we get into the Book of Revelation and it talks about these two witnesses. Is, are those two witnesses that are spoken of there 
Elijah and Enoch. We've talked about that another time on one of these calls, but I often think about that, you know, so, so yeah, I mean, um, but yeah, some, somehow, you know, the scripture tells us that these are people just like us. Um, so how about this? You know, when you think about, when you think about Elijah and you think about what he prayed for, um, are you bold enough to ask God to do something miraculous like Elijah was? There are multiple examples of Elijah asking God to do miraculous things. Are you bold enough to ask God to do something miraculous? Well, I think that the uh, the, the key would be if it is within uh, God's will. Um you know, we we have intentions that are selfish, um, then it may not be something that God grants. But if it's something that is uh, in his will, then he can accomplish miraculous things. Yeah. You know, it's a challenge, right, for us to think that we could ask God for big things. It's almost it almost feels like we're we're kind of stepping out of our lane in a way. And yet at the same time, you know, here we're given examples of of the fact that we can do that. Uh, what else? Ellie, you had a question or you had a comment, but how about this? Why don't we ask the question, do you feel like you can ask God to do miraculous things? Yes. Okay. What makes you confident that you could ask God to do miraculous things? You're the perfect one to answer this question. Because he loves us and he knows he wants our help. Like he knows that we want his help. Okay. All right. So, Ellie, let me tell you something that's different about kids and adults. Okay. All right. There's a couple things. One, we can sit without squirming. All right. So <laughs> kids can't do that. You have to move the whole time. All right. Um, but here's the other thing. So adults are great examples of wisdom. Mm-hmm. But kids are great examples of faith. <laughs> that's the truth. The Bible says that. Really? Oh, Yeah. And it it becomes harder for us as adults to exercise faith as we get older because we get used to walking by sight and we get used to relying on our own strength and our own wisdom, and that's a mistake. And when you look at what Jesus says, Jesus says that when it comes to faith, we're invited to have faith like a child. So there's something, you're at the perfect season of life right now. Ellie, how old are you right now? Nine and a half. Nine and a half. All right. You got to emphasize that half, right? Not just nine. You're nine and a half. Um, All right. Let's test that half too. What month were you born in? May. May. All right. That's an accurate nine and a half. All right. So, um, so you are at the season of life where you probably don't even realize it, but you demonstrate faith in ways that, that is just part of your natural day to day. And it's a good example to us as adults. And the Lord wants us to have faith like a child has faith. The Lord wants us to have faith like someone who's still in single digits, like someone who's nine and a half. Isn't that amazing? I'm almost double digit. You're almost. Well, don't lose faith when you hit the double digits like us. All I right. Won't. All right. Because I'm going to turn 10. Ellie, I'm going to segue from chatting with you right now, and I see another child hand up here. So we're going to take that hand as well because I think that they're uh, – probably good ones to answer this so go ahead all right sydney let's hear you what do Uh, you think are you bold enough to ask god to do something miraculous yes kind of do you believe that god does miracles yes do you okay sydney how old are you i'm nine nine not the half though not the half just the nine i was born in september all right. So another single digit guest. All right. Very good. Very good. All right. Let's mute, let's mute you for you there. All right. All right. So this now is just for the adults to answer this question. All right. What holds you back at this season of life from asking God to do miraculous things? I just want to hear from the adults. What's holding you back from asking God to do something miraculous? What do you think, Paul? Go ahead. I have to, uh, I, I I don't hold back with God. I've asked him to do the miraculous on many occasions. And I have to say in, in my almost 40 years of ministry, he, he never fails to amaze me. 
Um, I just want to give you a little story. Again, remember, this is coming from a Catholic background now. Sure. Uh, but uh, when we're in seminary, uh, it, according, uh, according to Catholic teaching, a deacon does not anoint uh, because the, the, the reference to James is very important uh, for us. It's one of our main pillars for the sacrament of anointing of the sick. Uh, well, when I was in seminary and I was a deacon, I wasn't ordained a priest yet. Uh, uh, a bishop, the bishop who was uh, in charge, uh, came up to me, called me to his office and said, I want you to go to this nursing home and I want you to anoint this woman uh, who is dying. She's, uh, you got to get up there fast because she's going. And I looked at him and I said, I'm not a priest, I'm a deacon. He goes, I don't care. I'm telling you, you've got to go and you've got to anoint. I understood later on as a bishop now, that I have that authority in emergency situations. So uh, anyway, so I went there and as I'm leaving, he goes, by the way, you need to do this anointing in Polish. And I go <laughs> in Polish. And here I am, I've never done an anointing before. I'm a deacon, I'm just preparing myself. And I'm driving to this nursing home about uh, an hour away to anoint this woman with holy oil, uh, with, with the oil of the sick, in Polish. So I'm driving there and I just said on my way there, I says, God, if this is going to work, it's got to be you. I know it's going to be all you because I don't know what I'm doing. I've never done this before and to do it in another language. So I got there. I anointed the woman with the oil of the sick in Polish. And the nurses told me that they expected that she was going to go anytime certainly by the evening. Um, a day and a half later, I found out that she had been discharged from the hospital. She went back to the nursing home and she lived yet another year and a half. Wow. That's God works miracles. He, he's unbelievable in the way he can, uh, uh, in, in my own life, when I almost died, when I came to, uh, and the, the doctor was pu pushing the tube down my throat, uh, you know, telling me to, to uh, swallow, and you can't swallow when they're throat, pushing their throat down into your lungs. Uh, but I just said, you know, as best I could, God, I know that you can heal me, and I'm standing on your promise. And 16 days later, I was out of the hospital. Fantastic. So God, God heals. He's a, he, he does, and I sure does. have total faith in him. Yeah, and he does the miraculous. And maybe I even should have phrased that question, you know, instead of just automatically assuming that there would be something that holds us back from asking God to do the miraculous, just kind of inviting us to kind of free form answer that, you know, are we willing to come before the Lord and ask him to do miraculous things? John, uh, to, tag yes. on to, to tag on to something Ian said earlier, sure. for myself and other believers that I talk with from time to time, uh -huh. it's if I'm not sure of what God's will is, it, it's a struggle sometimes to believe yeah. it, you know, for a particular miracle thing. So settling the will issue, I think a lot of times will uh, help us to pray more effectively. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's not always easy. Yeah, no, it's not. No, we really, we struggle with that. You know, these, these aren't, um, these are things scripture has to tell us to do because naturally speaking, we find ourselves operating in the opposite, you know, and scripture saying, no, like, Step up your faith. Trust. Trust. Here, here's one last question that, that I just want to throw out there, too, related to all of this. Um, you know, as James ends the book, he does so in a way where you could see that he has a very pastoral concern for those that have wandered from the truth. And so when we're thinking about prayer tonight and even kind of thinking about how we could be used of God to be an answer to prayer, what do you think? Do you have any thoughts on how we can help a brother or a sister who has wandered from the truth to come back to Jesus? Do you have any opinion on that? How can we help someone else? Yeah, Don, what do you think? There you go. What I was, what I was thinking about when you read the, the very last verse in uh, James about uh, restoring a brother and covering over many sins, it reminded me of the other verse that talks about, uh, about how love covers over uh, oh, yeah. many sins. So with regards to the questions you just asked, I see that as being, you know, the bottom line 
on on all this. Even the, even uh, James five sixteen. I just came from our Truth Tuesday. That's the verse that we uh, claim to be the basis for that meeting. Which that's what we do. We confess our sins to one another and pray for one another to, so we can be healed. And all that comes to us through the love of Christ, you know, expressed in us, and then how we do with with somebody else. And I think that uh, on the conversation about prayer and confession, how they, they go together, I think that is that is one of the aspects of it. You know, we First uh, John one nine tells us we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us. But uh, admitting and confessing our sins to one another. Uh, that connects us with God in many new ways because uh, we realize that, you know, we all struggle in some degree with all the same, same problems and confessing helps us to see that we're not alone. And in, in this group that I made reference to many times, that's what happens. Somebody says something they're struggling with or a sin issue. And then after we've all conversed on how we've seen that also in our lives and how God has maybe worked us through it or that we're still struggling with it, it gives us that oneness that, uh, you know, that we're not alone and that uh, God's ways works. And I, I love the uh, <laughs> the verse about Elijah and what he did. And we can be just like that because uh, there's a verse that Jesus talks about and you will do even greater things than these. And, and he was the son of God. So uh, all that really, really tied in. But uh, what it gave me at the bottom line on all this is the, uh, the love, the love that we get from him. And what we, that's what we have as our, uh, our strength, love conquers all. I don't want to get into first Corinthians 13, but you know, it's all about the love. And believe it or not, Don, that that's a perfect segue into our finale here this evening, because I wanted to let you guys know that our next Bible study is going to be on February 2nd, and we're going to start studying the book of 1 John now that we've finished the book of James. And if you read through the book of 1 John, one of the things that John emphasizes all throughout the book is what it looks like for believers to show Christ-centered love to one another. So you gave me kind of the perfect tie-in there, Don, to kind of make that announcement. You didn't even know you were doing that, but good, good job. Just your uh, pastoral instincts, I think. <laughs> I think that's the spirit. It has nothing to do with my instincts. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, we're going to start. This has been fun going through the book of James together. I, I really appreciate the involvement. Some of you have been part of uh, just about every single one of the these calls that, that we've done through the book of James. And on February 2nd, like I said, and those of you accessing via the podcast or, or any other means, uh, you're welcome to join us as well. February 2nd, we're going to pick up again, and we're going to start a new book. We're going to look at the book of 1 John, and we're going to be reminded of what it looks like for us as believers to show Christ-centered love to one another, and also what it looks like for us to display that in the context that the Lord's placed us in, whether it be in this, you know, this era that we consider a, you know, like a, a more secular era than some of the generations that have come before us, or whether you're in a context that really, really tests you. Uh, I think you'll find the book of First John very encouraging. I'd even encourage you, if you, get, if you get the opportunity in between now and then, to just take a few moments and read through it. It's not a long book, and it's certainly worth uh, added attention as uh, we try and live out the things that it encourages us to put into practice. Well, thanks for joining us this evening. Truly appreciate it. Thank you to those of you that are joining us via the podcast as well. We hope that the content was edifying. It was a little different tonight. Uh, I didn't realize we were going to have some young people joining us this evening. So I have to, uh, you know, adjust my teaching style a little bit. I did see one of you guys being a wise guy and drawing on the screen share while we were doing that. <laughs> I'll have to figure out how to disable that for the future, but <laughs> I did think it was fun. So Sydney. And Ellie, thanks for joining our call tonight. You guys added some great content and great context, and uh, we, we really appreciate your interest. So happy to have you guys. And uh, Tim, one question before we finish up. What state are you in? I always like to ask, and I forgot to ask. Uh, North Carolina. North Carolina. So we have North Carolina, New Hampshire, and I think everybody else on the call tonight was Pennsylvania. So Pennsylvania keeps dominating these these calls here. So we got to get more North Carolinians and more New Hampshire people to join us here 
uh, you know, so that we uh, balance out the states. But we're pretty much East Coasting these uh, these calls lately. So the East Coast is joining at eight. What do you think, Paul? I was just going to say that, especially since all of our football teams have been knocked <laughs> out now, you know, yeah. there's no excuse for us not to be on. Yeah, we're all our teams are gone. You know, they're all gone. Every one of us, we've all been eliminated. Sorry about that, Don. You know, he's out in Pittsburgh. There. Well, Paul, you like Pittsburgh too. Uh, Tim, I don't know if you're into football. Some of us are big Eagles fans up here, but <laughs> you've got it, your team down it actually, there. It actually feels up here that everybody's uh, everybody's already taken residence in Tampa Bay. <laughs> you've already, yeah, that's right. You're you're rooting for your old quarterback. Not me. No, oh, not you, not you. That's right. Your your locals are <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks so much, everybody, for being part of the call tonight. And Lord willing, I look forward to being able to get together again in two weeks. February 2nd, if we're able to make it. All right. Have a wonderful evening. Good night, everybody. Bye, Uncle Johnny. Bye-bye. See ya. Finding uplifting news in today's headlines is often like searching for a needle in a haystack. At the Story Behind podcast, we believe in the power of finding heartwarming tales and are happy to share empowering stories with you every week. Hear about how Steve Harvey surprised a dying man on Family Feud with $25,000. Get inspired by the note a waitress received from a patron dining alone. And even hear about how one VIP passenger made a hard-working pilot get emotional before his flight. To start listening to the Story Behind podcast, visit lifeaudio.com or search Story Behind on your favorite podcast platform.